Hello, and welcome to Behind the Buyout, a deals podcast where we sit down with private equity and venture capital practitioners and talk about their deals and deal making. I'm your host, Chris Nolter, TMT reporter for The Deal. Let's welcome Carl Press, partner on the Explore team at Tomo Bravo. Carl, thanks so much for joining us. Hi, Chris. Thanks for having me. So today we're going to talk about Tomo Bravo's Explore Fund, which focuses on middle market software, the shift from growth to profits in tech, and, and a number of other topics. So, Carl, maybe we could start with your background and journey at Tomo Bravo. Yeah, happy to. So, so Tomo Bravo today is one of the largest, or if not the largest, technology-focused private equity firm, really exclusively dedicated to enterprise software. And we've been doing that for the last 20 years. I joined the forum about seven and a half years ago in 2015. And to give you a sense, at the time, we had one fund that was $3.5 billion, and we had total capital under management of about $10 billion. And then fast forward to today, we've got over $120 billion of capital under management, and we have three distinct buyout funds that allow us to make control investments in software up to 12 billion of enterprise value, all the way down to about 100 million of enterprise value. The Explore Fund, which is the fund that I co-lead today, plays at the lower end of that spectrum. And we started the Explore Fund in 2020, really as a way to get back to the middle market. As our firm grew and as our flagship funds grew in size from three and a half to 10 to now you know 25 billion, we kind of got away from that middle market segment that really is where we cut our teeth and grew as a firm and had a bunch of our early success and made some of our best investments. So this was a bit of a turn the clock back moment to get back to that segment of the market, uh, work with founders and the emerging category leaders in in software. So it's a privilege for me to be able to co-lead this effort at Tomo Bravo. So that's really interesting, kind of going back to Tomo Bravo's roots with the Explore strategy. How do you define middle market? Yeah. Every firm has a different definition. For us today, it's generally companies between 15 million and about 50 million of revenue, plus or minus. And that, of course, depends on growth and profitability and so forth. But in that range, you know, we can make an equity investment anywhere from, say, 50 to 250 million. And that's really the purview of the Explore Fund. Gotcha. And so you're looking across software, right? I mean, are are there any other parameters that you have for investments? Yeah, that's right. We're completely horizontal across the enterprise business-to-business software world. So really any enterprise software company, whether it's applications, infrastructure, cybersecurity, fintech, healthcare IT, any of those categories, our mandate in Explorers to be opportunistic across all of those. And so, uh, you know, what's great for me is I get to experience and, and learn about all these different categories and invest across different segments. And the beauty of being part of Toma Bravo is we have subject matter experts in our flagship fund, in our portfolio, in our network that I can tap if I need to get deep on a particular category that might be new to me. The good news is there really isn't a space within the software universe that we haven't either invested in have a portfolio company in today or have spent considerable time in. So that's a huge advantage for us being opportunistic and being able to kind of look across these different segments. That's interesting. So there's kind of this symbiotic relationship between these these various parts of Tomo Bravo. Can you maybe elaborate on that a bit and how they fit together? Yeah. We joke sometimes there's an old saying about bringing a gun to a knife fight, but I feel like for Explore, when we go into middle market deals, it's like bringing a bazooka to the knife fight having Toma Bravo as our 
parent organization and being able to just leverage the operating partners that we have at our firm, the executive knowledge and network that we have at our firm, the portfolio companies, just the history, the experience, the pedigree, the relationships. It's so tremendously valuable to be able to bring all of that to bear in these middle market companies. It really is an advantage. And we don't treat explore deals differently than we do, say, our flagship deals. If you sat in on one of our investment committee meetings, unless you knew I was part of the Explore Fund, you really wouldn't otherwise know. We don't treat that process any differently. And I think that was by design. And I credit our managing partners and our founders for structuring the firm that way. And it's just been tremendously valuable for us. The Explore Fund's approach is not really overly thematic. Is that a a fair characterization? Well, it's thematic in the sense that we're 100% focused on business-to-business software. So at the highest level, we're hyper-thematic within software and within these categories. While there are some that we like more than others, in general, we are opportunistic. And so if there's really good opportunities and and managers that we've gotten to know in, say, healthcare IT or in cybersecurity, well, we want to go spend time on those opportunities. And it's a blessing for me as a leader of this fund effort to be able to look at all these different categories. It just gives us a, a wider aperture to find opportunity. And if I need subject matter expertise, I can leverage folks internally. So more opportunistic than thematic beyond the fact that, of course, everything we do is business-to-business SaaS. So beyond size, how do the Explore deals differ from other Toma Brava deals? Yeah, that's a great question. In our flagship fund, which now is well north of $20 billion of capital, the vast majority of those transactions are public to private or take private transactions where we're acquiring the shares of a public company, taking it private and and then taking it through a transformation. And in most cases, those are real category killer type companies, companies that have emerged as the winner or, or nearly the winner in a particular segment that is from here looking to expand upon that, can further consolidate the end market, drive profitability, and so forth. And oftentimes those companies will emerge again as public companies. We'll take them through an IPO process. In the Explore Fund, there's very little to no take private activity anymore in this segment of the market. Nearly everything we look at is private. It's either founder-owned or venture capital-backed or backed by another growth equity type sponsor. And we're typically looking at emerging category leaders. So companies that are disrupting some of those incumbents, some of those existing leaders and tend to be growing more quickly just by virtue of being smaller and more nimble, typically haven't ever done any M&A. And so we're introducing that muscle to them for the first time. Oftentimes, haven't really instrumented their business the way that some of these other larger companies have in terms of the systems that they use and the processes that they implement. And so just bringing in all that really good hygiene is a huge step function improvement to a lot of those mid-market businesses. And that's not to say they're not well-run companies. It's just where they are in their journey versus the companies that we look at on the flagship side. So from the outside in, it it may look the same. We're investing in software businesses, but the nuts and bolts and day-to-day activity can be quite different. So aside from those characteristics and the valuation difference, is the playbook for growing companies pretty much the same as the other Toma Bravo funds? It's largely the same. We have the same set of metrics and reporting that we use that is pretty consistent for the most part across all of our companies with some small exceptions. And so the near-term challenges might be different, but the approach is pretty similar across the board. 
And when you talk about the knowledge flow, and you spoke earlier about how Explore benefits from that. I mean, I imagine that there's also benefits them, kind of the window that you're gaining into some of these disruptive companies in these emerging niches. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Our, our flagship companies get a window into who are these emerging leaders and where are they spending time and how are they thinking about the next five or 10 years of a particular category? In some instances, a particular investment that comes across the Explore Fund or an opportunity, it may not be a great fit for one reason or another for us as a platform, but it may be a great add-on acquisition for one of our larger flagship fund companies or Discover Fund companies. And so we'll pass that along to our colleagues and very quickly that can end up in the Toma Bravo ecosystem in a different way. So it's really symbiotic and it's a super collaborative organization. It's one of the things I love about our firm is everybody's willing to help each other. Everybody is in it together. And even though we have our different funds and our different universes where we hunt, we're all one team. And so what are some of the deals that kind of exemplify the Explore playbook? Yeah. Yeah. There, there are a few. The first one I'll mention, Foundation Software, I think is a great one. So Foundation is a software company that sells into commercial construction subcontractors. So think about electricians, plumbing, roofing, HVAC, all the different trades in construction. We sell into those businesses. And there's about 80,000 of those in North America alone. And they all need accounting software. They all need payroll software, bidding and estimation, HR. And historically, the the suite of solutions available to those 80,000 subcontractors have been pretty poor and pretty legacy. Foundation was one of the emerging SaaS next generation leaders in that space and was one of these beautiful founder-owned businesses based in the Midwest that every private equity firm was calling on for many, many years, including us. And you know, the way we got in, and this kind of goes back to your last question about you know the benefits of being part of a broader institution like Tomo Bravo. We really got a warm introduction through one of our executives in our ecosystem from one of our portfolio companies. That introduction led us to be able to do a completely bilateral proprietary deal with the founder of Foundation back in 2020. And we didn't have that relationship. It would have been a lot more difficult to achieve that outcome. Fast forward to two years later, We've completely transformed the company in a pretty short period of time. We've doubled the revenue. We've nearly tripled the earnings. We've accelerated the growth. We've accelerated the transition to full subscription revenue. And we've made three add-on acquisitions. So really just textbook Toma Bravo execution around acceleration of growth, using a platform to do a so-called buy and build, you know, to, to do these acquisitions, and working closely with a founder who today still owns. Twenty percent of the company sits on the board of directors, so that's that's just a great kind of bread and butter example of of what we do and explore. So you know, I think Exostar is is another interesting example. You, you know, you mentioned with Foundation how working with founders is is so often appealing to sponsors, but Exostar is kind of a different scenario, correct? Yeah, whole different ballgame with Exostar. So Exostar was a joint venture between some of the largest aerospace and defense manufacturers. Think of the Boeings, Lockheeds, Raytheons. They started Exostar in in 2000 as a way to facilitate procurement with their suppliers. And at Toma Bravo, we had acquired two different joint ventures in the past in different industries. So we had a sense for the challenges that go into acquiring one of these joint ventures, sort of carving it away from its owners, standing it up as a standalone commercial entity, and then driving profitability and growth and innovation. We kind of knew what we were going to get into with that. And so we ended up meeting Exostar about three and a half years before we made the acquisition. We started to build a relationship with the CEO. 
And really, that's kind of where it starts is seeing eye to eye with the leader and making sure you're building a relationship with someone that you can work with long term. And eventually, we got the joint venture, the consortium to agree to sell to us. And we took a business that was owned by its customers, wasn't really growing and losing money to a company that's now growing double digits, introducing new products, and generating close to 30 points of EBITDA margin. And that was all you know done organically. So another massive business transformation in a short period of time that relied on some institutional knowledge that we had developed over time around joint ventures in this case. So what is it about joint ventures that appeals to Tomo Bravo? Yeah, I mentioned we had done two others, one in the healthcare industry called GHX, Global Healthcare Exchange, and another in the chemicals industry called Alemica. And what we learned is these joint ventures, first of all, they get created. It's really a company owned by its customers is the way to think about it. And so they really exist to the benefit of the customers. If the customers need a particular product, they go and build it and they go and implement it. And so as a result, they're deeply, deeply embedded in these customer bases. I mean, they are the companies that start the joint venture and the joint venture themselves. It's sort of one and the same, given how deeply they're embedded. And But at the same time, they're not particularly efficiently run because that's not the goal of the joint venture to create a bunch of profit margin and to drive growth. It's really about creating solutions that solve a particular problem. Where we can come in is we can continue to service those customers as well as they've been serviced over the years, but start to drive efficiencies around implementation, around R&D cycles, around productizing the solution. So what we found with Exostar is we had a suite of products that was more broadly applicable than to just a handful of large OEMs in the aerospace and defense industry. In fact, the company, even before our acquisition, has started to expand into healthcare and life sciences. And so all of a sudden, when we stepped into the opportunity, we saw this as a huge growth factor for us. Hey, let's go invest behind that. Maybe as a joint venture, they may have only dabbled in those other industries, but with our help and guidance and investment, we were able to accelerate that. Similarly, we saw that there were a handful of products that were really only used by one or two customers. And oftentimes that can be difficult to make profitable. And so we spent a lot of time thinking about how can we consolidate some of these solutions from a technology perspective so that we have fewer solutions to support, fewer versions to manage, and that can lead to more innovation on new products and it can improve our R&D cycles. So there's just a lot of what I'd call low or medium hanging fruit at these joint ventures that with some help and guidance, and of course, with the right leadership at the company, we can go and achieve. And that's what we saw with both GHX and Alemica. And certainly that's what we're experiencing with Exostar. So you've invested in construction software and business collaboration, AI-based cardiovascular imagery. Can you say something about just how you approach sourcing these deals, given the broad spectrum of software that you invest in? Yeah, it's a fair question. We cover a lot of ground at the firm and, and specifically within Explore. And so you know, sourcing, it, it's kind of a multi-vector approach. We, of course, rely on our proprietary network, our relationships to get us warm introductions to executives and founders. That would be like foundation. We do a lot of proprietary sourcing where we are identifying businesses early that we think are interesting, that we think would benefit from the knowledge and the resources that we would bring to bear. That would be like Exostar. Of course, we work with the sell side, like most private equity firms. We work with investment bankers and try to get pretty selective with where we spend our time there. So 
it's a bunch of different ways to get at what we think are the best software companies. And our approach tends to be a, a concentrated one as investors. You know, we only make nine, 10, maybe 15 at most investments in any given fund. So we're hyper selective. At the top of the funnel in the mid market is enormous. I mean, we see well over 400 deals a year. So it's more than a deal a day in the mid market where we play. And so you know, a lot of what we do is just saying no and being hyper selective about where we want to spend our time. And it's a blessing to have all that deal flow. Uh, it can be overwhelming at times, but ultimately allows us to really get hyper selective. So now shifting a bit to the market, we've seen such drastic impacts on valuation of public software companies in, in the last year. I mean, of course, in the overall market, but you know, software has really been hit hard. How significant has the impact been when you're looking at private middle market companies? Yeah. So, you know, the correction that we saw in the public markets eventually makes its way to the private market without a doubt. And so we're seeing it in a kind of couple of ways. One is just lower volume of activity. So that top of funnel, maybe it was 400 last year, and maybe this year it's two thirds of that. And that's okay because there's still enough to go around, but lower volume in general. And then the credit market obviously has changed. Now we don't use a tremendous amount of leverage in our investments. Typically, only 25% of the purchase price is dead, but credit spreads have widened and the cost of capital has gone up. So that obviously changes the model a little bit. And there's a renewed emphasis across the board on capital efficiency and driving profitability. And that's kind of the biggest topic in SaaS and software is, hey, we, you know, it's no longer grow at all costs. It's being smart about using your capital. We sort of always had that approach. Maybe it was out of favor for a little while there. But we feel satisfied that the world has kind of come around to our view that, hey, the, the most valuable companies are going to be profitable growers. And in fact, even today, for the few brave souls in the middle market that have decided to sell their business or recapitalize over the last few months, for the highly profitable growers, they're still getting pretty premium valuations because they're getting a lot of attention from funds like the Explore Fund. So it all kind of comes back to our core tenant of profitable growth and winning the day in this market. So it, it seems like every few years or so, there's a reset in software where the emphasis shifts, as you're saying, from growth to profitability. We've seen this kind of a few times, maybe 2017, 2018. Are there any precedents that you think are useful for this? A lot of my partners were here at the firm back in 2008, 2009, during the last financial crisis. And so one of the big topics of discussion over the course of the year has been revisiting some of the things that we did then to protect our margins, to make sure that we were maintaining our retention with our customers, to make sure that we were maintaining sales efficiency, despite kind of slowing new logo bookings growth. So that's been a pretty valuable set of discussions and valuable precedent. Now, the businesses that we've invested in are much more resilient today than they were then. Back then, they were more one-time license sales. Today, it's much more subscription-based. So the quality of the businesses is higher today. Of course, the valuations that we've been paying are much higher today than they were then. But the operational approach around protecting the margins and preserving value in, in the face of slowing bookings growth, that's been super valuable. And we've definitely revisited that. You know, it's interesting. You're talking about going back to the great financial crisis and you have this kind of overlap of you know the emergence of SaaS models and also kind of the cheap credit that's helped a lot of these deals occur. It's really fascinating. I mean, SaaS as a category has really emerged in the last 12 to 14 years in a big way. And that's just happened to have coincided 
with the era of zero interest rates or very, very low interest rates since the financial crisis. So this entire industry has almost grown up in the era of cheap capital. And that, of course, informs how managers make decisions and how they capital allocate and how investors think about making decisions. And now we're kind of entering in a new paradigm. You know, We're still only in the third or fourth inning of the digital transformation and what SaaS can mean for our economy. But the interest rate environment has completely changed. The way we think about capital efficiency is changing. And so it's going to be really interesting. I think founders and executives who have been really prudent about managing cash and managing profitability are going to flourish and are going to really succeed. And, and those who maybe haven't are going to struggle through a transition as we move into this new paradigm. But I just think it's fascinating that we're kind of at this inflection point. And as a firm, you know, we're making a multi-generational bet on business software. And we recognize that the secular trend is going to carry the day. We think business software is going to transform every economy and it's already happening. And we're going to live through a few different cycles, credit cycles, economic cycles, inflation. And so we just need to be nimble as investors and as operators and make sure that we're partnering with the very best managers to kind of live through these cycles. We talked about SaaS and the importance of that model. Is there anything else you can say about what companies have been the most resilient in this market? I can tell you that you know, the businesses that we love, for us, it kind of starts with the partnership with the founder or the CEO. Partnering with somebody who is like-minded, who thinks about capital efficiency and profitability and profitable growth the way we do, it all starts with that. And, and I think that's true for almost any private equity investor. Without a really strong leader with whom you're entirely aligned, no investment is going to work. And it doesn't really matter what conditions are in the broader market. So it starts with that. And you know, from there, you know, assuming that we have an alignment, we absolutely tear apart these businesses during diligence in a very short order to identify the quality of the revenue. So that's you know revenue composition, how much of it is recurring, what the retention is, both gross and net, the quality of those renewals, that whether the company is able to pass on price increases to the customers, whether they're able to upsell those customers over time, uh, how efficient the sales model is, the gross margin. So we take all of that into consideration and then benchmark that against the 100 plus platform companies that we've invested in over the last many, many years to determine, you know, hey, will this withstand the test of cycles and time? Is this a best-in-class software business? For us, it's less about what category it's in. I think there are categories we've generally liked more than others, but it's much more about the leadership and the quality of, of the revenue. Gotcha. So is it harder to reach agreement on valuations in this kind of environment? I mean, you have companies that may be really at a position of strength and you may have companies that are kind of, you know, worried about the dreaded down round. How difficult is it to come to agreement on valuations in this environment? Yeah, I think you nailed it. There's sort of two things that work against us right now. One is just general fear in the market that we're at a bottom. And of course, no founder or other sponsor or venture capitalist wants to sell at the absolute bottom. And so people are willing to wait. And in a lot of cases, companies raised a lot of capital recently because capital was abundant. And so they don't necessarily need to transact right away. And that's understandable. And then the other side of that is you hit this point, which is they may have raised at an exceptionally high valuation. And so transacting today in today's multiple environment would be challenging. That would be a quote-unquote down round where many of the 
shareholders that just invested would be underwater or the option holders that just received incentive units might be underwater. And, and that's painful too. So we have a couple uh, factors working against us in a market like this, but that doesn't stop us from trying or looking or you know, trying to find those really interesting opportunities. So how are you thinking about your portfolio investments heading into 2023? So right now, in some parts of our portfolio, we are seeing a slowdown in new bookings. I don't think that's a surprise to anybody. And I think some of that will persist into 2023, or at least we're budgeting for it to persist into 2023. So as we round out the year, as we finalize budgets for next year, we're, we're doing a few things. One is we're budgeting for lower bookings. We're including more margin of safety in our bookings and in our cost structure so that even if a new business is lighter, we can still hit our earnings targets. We're taking a renewed focus on pricing. Obviously, inflation is top of mind for everybody and it affects us. 80% of our business costs are labor at all of our companies and those labor costs are going up for us. And so to some degree, we need to pass that along to our customers. And so we're getting more aggressive on pricing and price increases. The prevailing wisdom in software has been that demand for software is pretty inelastic with respect to price. You can push price and customers are going to be okay with it. Well, we're really stress testing that to see where that can go and focused on selling into our customer base. So oftentimes, and this I think was true back in the last financial crisis, when you're going through a downturn, acquiring new customers can be quite difficult, but selling into your existing customer base often is where you can make up for that. And so having a renewed focus on expanding our existing customer relationships is going to be really important. So these are just some of the discussions that are happening across the portfolio right now as we finalize budgets and head into 2023. Carl, thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, Chris, this was a lot of fun. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much. This is Chris Nolter, TMT reporter for The Deal. Thanks for joining us for Behind the Buyouts. Behind the Buyouts.